Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos. This is FP's economics podcast. Every week we take some data points and use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you from Berlin, Germany. As always, uh, Adam Tews, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we will be changing the format a bit this week. The reason for that should be, I think, obvious enough. The war in Ukraine that was launched this week by Russia seemed worth devoting the entire show to. So we'll just be doing one data point, and that data point is 31. That is the number of years that Ukraine has been an independent, sovereign country since 1991. And that's kind of what's at stake in the war that's going on right now. Attacks have been launched across the country. After days on a razor's edge, Ukraine is now a nation at war. President Vladimir Putin warning other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action признать независимость и суверенитет Донецкой Народной Республики и Луганской Народной Республики. One of the more serious issues is a global issue, and that is the impact of all these tensions on the oil and gas markets. It's hard to know what Vladimir Putin's exact goal is. It seems like it may be the complete destruction of the Ukrainian military maybe even the collapse of an independent Ukrainian government. For the Ukrainian nation, it's an existential event. For the rest of the world, it's a geopolitical turning point and a potential economic crisis. The West has made it clear that it's prepared to wage a type of economic war on Russia with promises of the harshest sanctions in recent memory. But the leverage kind of seems to run both ways, given the size of the Russian economy and its status as a major exporter of grain and gas. And as in any war, the costs won't necessarily be straightforward. So that's what I was hoping we could get a handle on, Adam. So on Thursday, after a bit of a delay, the United States finally announced its package of severe sanctions, as the Biden administration has been calling it. There's been a lot of talk about what exactly is in that package. Adam, I mean, what exactly did Biden deliver here? I think we're still trying to figure it out. This is highly technical terrain. But the big news is that the U.S. Treasury is extending sanctions from the policy bank VTB, which had been previously targeted, to Spurbank, which is the dominant bank in the Russian economy, um, holds about 30% of all deposits. Half of Russians have an account with the bank and have their payroll paid through it. So this was a huge step. But then as he was going along, Biden then slipped in this other phrase, which is to say, and yes, we are acutely sensitive to the issue here of needing to balance the interests of consumers in both the United States and Europe, who are, of course, understandably worried about energy prices. And so we have made provision to ensure that 
payments for energy deliveries can still go ahead, at which point, of course, really the entire conversation ought to have stopped. And the question should be, Mr. President, what do you mean? Because unless you are sanctioning energy payments, you're not really imposing the sanctions that matter. And if you dig deep into the uh, the fine print of the of the Treasury website, it does appear as though the Treasury sanctions exempt a whole variety of different payments, for instance, to international institutions that have to operate in Russia. They explicitly exempt energy as a sector. And, and what, the, what the instructions, what the fine print seems to suggest is that if an American actor or a non-American actor wants to make a payment to one of these sanctioned Russian banks for energy-related purposes any kind of deal with regard to energy, it would seem, they're, they're free to do so as long as they act by way of a non-American intermediary. So, you know, this would seem to be like a really a, an open door to an avoidance of uh, the sanctions and, and, to, and to allow, as it were, the, the major payments of, of funds uh, to go ahead. So I think this is probably the terrain on which this compromise, this difficult compromise with the Europeans was struck because... The Europeans desperately need the Russian energy. An immediate strike against their energy supply would inflict crippling damage on the European economy. And yet clearly action needs to be taken. It needs to be dramatic. And there needs to be the threat that it extends to a wider and more important group of financial institutions. And this appears to be the, the, you know, the, the, the fine print which enables that compromise to have been struck. I mean, I really just want to underscore this. I mean, if the whole point of the sanctions is to prevent Russia from conducting transactions abroad, and that mostly consists of energy. That's most of what Russia exports. And we do that through the banking system by targeting banks and preventing them from doing these international transactions. But then we add a loophole that says, except for the energy exports that are the majority of the transactions, what is the point of these sanctions? Is that what you're saying? I mean, that these are kind of like uh, essentially just a huge loophole in the middle of this sanctions. I'm as bewildered as, as you are, to be honest. Like I'm, I'm working my way through this fine print. I have uh, accessed the hive mind of Twitter and, and been corresponding with some pretty knowledgeable World Bank people who know the financial plumbing. And they seem to confirm this reading that the president said both these things, that America is taking dramatic action against the new range of banks. All of the major banks of Russia now fall under these sanctions. But America is also cognizant of the potential impact on, on the energy sector, which is critical for both America and for Europe, and is cognizant of that. And then when you look in the fine print, they do indeed appear to be very sensitive to this issue. Uh, it, it may be the case that, as it were, there's there's more fine print. There's even you know there's there are there are clauses which make this less open than than it seems. But but right now, if I was in the energy trading business, I would be diverting my business to Deutsche Bank or Paribas or whatever else and getting on with it. Got it. So maybe it would be helpful to take a step back a bit. I mean, I was wondering what history generally tells us about the effects of a major interstate war like this. I mean, it's been a long time since we've, I guess, had this style of war in Europe. Um, what are the effects generally in history when this happens on the global economy? Are wars like this major economic turning points generally? And then who tends to get affected most of all? Well, I mean, I think, you know, um, 
It is tempting, of course, because this is a, a major war, no doubt, a huge invasion involving a force on the Russian side of perhaps you know, 150, 200,000 troops with tanks and air support and everything else on terrain that is the classic terrain of, of Russian military history. Um, you know, and, and given the moral outrage which this, which this has, has quite reasonably produced, you know, to make analogies like Ambassador McFall has been all over Twitter um, declaring this to be just like 1939. Um, and you can see where he's coming from. But of course, as a historical analogy, it's, in, it's, it's not very convincing. Um, this is a major war by any stretch you know, of the imagination, but it isn't a major war like World War I or World War II, which did indeed change the economic structure, the social structure, deflected the course of history generally, opened up the door to revolutions like the Russian Revolution and so on. I mean, the direct analogue to this is the American-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, similar scale of conventional operation. The Russian air attack so far has been modest by comparison with shock and awe. Um, and that had a devastating impact on Iraq, it had a hugely disruptive impact on the regional economies, ultimately destabilizing, you know, Syria, contributing to the destabilization of Syria, at least. Um, a huge shock to the Iranian economy um, and to other neighbors uh, who exported to Iraq. But it's not a world um, shaking event. And of course, the impact on the American economy of the 2003 evasion of Iraq was was modest, you know. I mean, it's it involved a ramp up in military expenditure of one or two percent of GDP, and the effort the Russians are making is larger in proportion to their economy. But as far as we know, I was speaking to a military expert this week. He was saying that one of the telltale signs for him of the fact that this invasion was absolutely serious was that the Russians changed their reserve system in the fall, and they did that because apparently under the Russian legal system as it currently stands, they can't actually use conscripts on a large scale for this invasion. They're not allowed to deploy Russian conscripts outside Russia. They can only deploy their professional force. And that gives you an idea of how restrained, at least it seems, the Russian invasion at this point is. Now, that information may rapidly outdate. We will maybe discover units of raw Russian conscripts being thrown into combat. But this isn't this isn't a wholesale mobilization of Russian society for for the invasion. So I would expect very, I mean, catastrophic damage to Ukraine itself and ripple effects that shock confidence throughout the region, spilling over across the Black Sea, no doubt. Um, but it's that kind of a, it's that kind of a major war as opposed to the total, you know, historic transformations that we saw as a result of World War One, World War Two. I mean, presumably there will be effects on commodity market specifically the exports that russia and ukraine make i mean I, I guess that could also lead to increases in prices i mean and, and that would probably affect countries that are sensitive to those prices i mean you know i guess with the developing world now should they fear kind of increases in commodity prices of wheat and oil and this kind of thing Yes, absolutely. I mean, we groan under the, the shock of, of rising gas and oil prices in the West, but the situation for poor countries, which are desperately dependent on imported energy, is very is very is much more serious. And, and the same applies to the other dimension of Russian and Ukrainian commodity export, which is very important, which is indeed food, so big ag, wheat, corn, so maize, 
and um, sunflower uh, seeds, which are a key ingredient for sunflower oil, which is widely used for cooking in large parts of the world. And the, this is the other sector where Ukraine, in fact, actually really matters as a global economic force. And along with Russia, the two of them together are huge. So they account for about 23 percent of global wheat exports. So almost a quarter of the market. Um, so that's gigantic. Um, 19% of, of corn or, or maize uh, that's exported globally and 80% of sunflower oil um, comes from, from this region. So these are going to be big shocks. Um, the stocks uh, for those are adequate to avoid, I think, um, you know, an immediate global hunger crisis. But food, the prices of all of those commodities are surging as we speak. Some experts are predicting a doubling of wheat prices. And, and that has a really dramatic effect on low-income countries. And the list of large importers of, of grain from from this region, and Foreign Policy had a great piece about this uh, a few weeks ago, includes incredibly fragile uh, customers like Lebanon, uh, but also big, populous, uh, medium to low-income countries like Bangladesh, like Egypt, um, Ethiopia, um, all of which um, rely quite heavily on on imported grain and flour, so it's a it's a precarious situation from that point of view. I mean, to to lose twenty three percent of of global exports is is a huge shock to to the market. Yeah, that is pretty flabbergasting. We will take a break here, but we will be right back uh, to talk about uh, fossil fuels. So uh, stick with us. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we are back still talking about the war in Ukraine and the economic effects for the entire world. Adam, to turn to Russian fossil fuels, uh, just a basic question right off the bat. I mean, which countries are most dependent on Russian fossil fuels at all? Well, Russia does export um, all three major fossil fuels, so, so oil, gas, and coal. And um, the largest is still oil, actually, um, that counts for about half its daily um, exports of, of commodities. Germany gets a lot of its oil for its refineries from, from Russia and a lot of its coal, actually, the hard coal burned in what's left of German heavy industrial capacity. Quite a lot of that comes from, from Russia. The difference, though, between um, oil and coal as opposed to gas and why all of the attention right now is on gas is that oil and coal are markets which have deep spot markets globally. So you can actually just go into one of the big commodity exchanges and buy oil and coal for immediate delivery. And they, they can be shipped by bulk cargo ship and um, can be moved around the world relatively, relatively easily. And though Russia is a huge supplier, it is one-tenth of the oil market. By contrast, um, Gas is, of course, much harder to move around. And the only cheap, really cheap way of moving it is by pipeline. And those are projects which take, you know, five years to 10 years to really complete. They require huge investment. And then once they're in the ground or on the ground or under the sea, as in the case of Nord Stream, um, they're there for, for the duration. And that, that builds in these massive dependencies. And by that standard... Perhaps unsurprisingly, the countries which are most dependent on Russia in Europe are the former members of the Soviet bloc. So if you look at uh, Europe, it's Czechia, it's Latvia, it's Hungary, it's Slovakia, it's Bulgaria and it's Finland, which famously existed in this sort of Finlandized state of neutrality with regard to the Soviet Union, but right next door, obviously. And for them, the degree of dependence on imports from Russia varies between 67% for Finland to 100% for Czechia. So Czechia just really doesn't have any other access. That it, all, its gas comes from, all its gas comes from Russia. But if you add all of them together, of course, that's a bunch of small countries. So their total weight is smaller than that of Germany. And Germany is really pivotal here because it's by far the largest European economy and half its imported gas comes from, from Russia. So it's a huge economy and it's very heavily dependent by any standard. And gas flows into Germany's domestic heating systems. It's how people stay warm, how they cook. And it flows into electricity generation and it flows into industry. Um, and so Germany is pivotal. And so the politics of the Nord Stream, the second of the two Baltic pipelines, which Germany has been involved in building since the early 2000s is so sensitive and the fact that Berlin has essentially put Nord Stream 2 on ice is a major move in the sanctions game. It signals that Berlin is willing to pay a price to, for taking the necessary action. What it's going to be really interesting to see is how other big European, West European consumers of, uh, of gas play this. And the other one is Italy. And Mario Draghi, as Prime Minister of Italy, has been notably dovish. The game is changing every single moment right now with the, as we become aware of the force of the Russian invasion. But up to this point, Draghi has been notable for his reticence on sanctions. And in fact, he's been very explicit on the fact that Europe has to pay, centrally pay attention to its energy supply. These are the trade-offs that are going to have to be figured out over 
the coming months. Just to follow up here, um, I've read that the United States also imports crude oil and coal from Russia. I mean, is that significant in terms of those imports? No, those are two of the two types. I mean, it does it because of convenience, because the Russian oil and coal meet certain quality standards and it comes at a good price. And that's why it will be worth shipping all that way. Hmm. Um, but um, it's not an essential dependence in the way that Europe's hard piped dependence on Russian gas is. And those flows could be substituted at a price, of course. And America will feel this through rising prices. I mean, mm. America is self-sufficient if you look at the sort of gross numbers of the overall production of fossil fuels and the consumption of fossil fuels. But at the margin, it's a quality game. Which ones do you prefer for which purpose? And in any case, with the exception of gas, um, oil and coal are global markets. So America feels the pinch in price terms. Gas is different because it has to be piped. And so American gas prices remain, I mean, they're orders of magnitude at this point, lower than they are in Europe. Hmm. So, I mean, Europe's gas price rose by 50% on Thursday, <laughs> the spot price for gas in, in Europe. So they're seeing an absolutely gigantic shock. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned the <clears throat> the decision here in Germany to cancel the gas pipeline Nord Stream 2. In response to that, former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, he took to Twitter and he threatened that uh, gas prices would rise even higher in retaliation for that cancellation. The number he mentioned was 2,000 euros per thousand cubic meters of gas, which would be a doubling of the already high gas price. Um, you know, pretty clearly this was a threat. You know, you try to harm us, well, we can harm you. I don't know, that got me wondering, is this kind of threat new for Russia? Was the Soviet Union a reliable supplier during the Cold War? I mean, this kind of threat, is this a new thing for Russia? Yeah, it's worth being clear about what the Germans have done on Nord Stream. I mean, they, they have not cancelled it. They have put it on ice in the sense that they've withdrawn the process of certification that would be necessary to allow it to go into operation. So they there is the possibility of it restarting. And I I would still bet money on the fact that in due course, gas will flow through that pipe. 11 billion really? dollars have been invested in it. It would be extraordinary if it didn't at some point. But in any case, yes, it's a remarkable move for Germany because they've been holding back on that for months now to the embarrassment, I think, of, say, policy wonks on the German side because it seemed so craven to to just go along with this commercial project. And businesses across Europe are involved when you talk about this as a German-Russian pipeline. It involves Gazprom on one side and a whole variety of Western firms carefully shielded behind legal constructions, which mean that they're not vulnerable to American sanctions on the other side. I mean, the fact of the matter is that it's important to recognise as well that Russia doesn't set the price for gas, right? Ultimately, the, the price for gas is set by arbitrage between whatever contracts are arranged between the pipelines and the spot price. And so when Medvedev says this, what he's really saying is bad things are going to happen and then the spot price will react and then you'll see whether you like it or not. Uh, he may also be making a threat that Russia would, as it were, cut off its supply to the global market. But, but um, that really is the question whether Russia will be willing to do that because it earns just from gas alone $250 million a day. So well, wait, wait, when you when you say when you say bad things will happen, I mean, meaning Russia would do what produce less gas and to raise that spot price? Yes, Russia could make less gas available to the Europeans that that is the threat. And were that to happen, the Europeans would then have to go into other markets to find the gas and then those prices would rocket. Mm. But 
the, the situation is not one in which the principal threat is that the Russians will say to the Europeans, you can have the gas, but at a higher price. Yeah. Right? That isn't the way this bargain would work. The Russians would say, you can't have any gas. The Europeans will be desperate and then go looking for it somewhere else. And then those prices would surge. And this is really unusual behavior because one of the justifications for the otherwise rather inexplicable dependence of Europe on Russia in recent decades is that going back to the 1970s, even at the height of the second phase of the Cold War in the 1980s, Russia was a thoroughly reliable supplier of, of energy to the West. Um, the, the gas and the oil flowed, and they flowed consistently. And um, that has always been the justification. Whenever, whenever people have queried Germany's policy on this, they've said, well, we actually think the, the Russians are reliable suppliers. There's even been, and this is analogous to what American liberals hoped for from China in the 1990s, the sense that as it were, binding Russia into supply contracts made them more reliable, right? So the idea was uh, that you, as it were, achieved a degree of influence over Russia too, because after all, there is a mutual interest in this um, by, by engaging in these deals. And that has been the, the record to date. And so far, as of now, gas is flowing through the pipelines of Ukraine to the West today, even as a full-scale invasion is taking place. And Russia has not attempted to throttle that back as yet. They're waiting, I think, to see. Um, who knows how this is going to play out in the next 24, 48 hours. But um, they, I think they are waiting to see how the West reacts. Yeah, I mean, clearly the threat is on the table from Russia somehow to induce a higher price. But yeah, that does seem to raise this question of European dependence on Russia and I guess then raise the question of whether that dependence can, can be curtailed somehow. I mean, how quickly could Europe get alternative sources of energy? I mean, how long are the lead times here? You seem to be suggesting they're pretty long. I mean, I know here in Germany, we've been talking about this turn to renewable energy. It seems like years now. Why is that taking so long to ramp up? And can that be speeded up? Yeah, I think it's crucial to think in terms of three different timelines here. Um over the three to five to 10 year time horizon, there are ways out of this uh, dependence on Russia, which would be in the form one would hope. Um, and if the EU's next gen EU program actually comes into effect, this would be the path they would choose, which will be a move towards greater renewables and crucially much greater efficiency. But that's a huge challenge. And that's why the long term decarbonisation of energy systems is a matter of 10 or 20 years rather than rather than something you can do tomorrow. On the other hand, over the very short term, the Europeans, I think, are relatively sanguine. They're no longer quite in the panicky mode that they were in in October, November, December. So if you do the math very carefully and make some optimistic assumptions about cold weather, or rather the weather not turning too cold in the next couple of months, there's a scenario in which Europe could handle a full-scale shutdown of gas energy through to the summer, we could live off the stocks, Europe could live off the stocks that it's got and get through. It could substitute imported LNG, perhaps. It could bring in some more supply from North Africa and Norway. The real problem is the intermediary stage. So if the long-term vision is pretty clear at this point, and we're pretty confident that Europe can probably get through to the summer and the warmer weather when less gas will be needed, the real nightmare scenario, I think, for Europe is to still be in a standoff confrontation with Russia nine months from now. And then it gets really difficult to see how you 
plug that gap, um, 1,700 terawatt hours. Now, that's $250 million a day, which Russia is losing. So would Russia really want to do a prolonged blockade? Big question mark. But if it did, what would Europe do? It would need to probably ration industrial consumption. There's probably no other way around it. So it's not the immediate question of running out of fuel in the next five to six months, except perhaps for the most vulnerable East European states. The long-term future is pretty clear now, I think. But it's that time horizon of the next year or two that's going to be really, really dicey if we do end up in a new full-on confrontation. But as I say, you know, in previous moments of confrontation, if we are going back to a new Cold War, it doesn't necessarily mean that the oil and gas has to stop flowing. Got it. What generally, what do you make of the cliche that I would often hear here, even when I was talking with German policymakers, that the gas pipeline that is now on ice, as you put it, was just a business deal and we shouldn't be looking at it through a political lens or thinking about it in terms of the kind of broader foreign policy situation. I mean, I don't know whether people in this sector themselves think of themselves as just doing business deals when you're dealing with energy, such an existential kind of commodity that we're, that we're talking about here. Does anyone think these are just normal business deals? I mean, how to make sense of that line? Well, I mean, it's a convenient line. And it is in a sense, right, the 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 operative principle of, of liberal economics, market economics generally, right, is it's all just business, really. But as it were, I mean, the history of, of Russia's relations with Western business since the 1990s tells you that that is, it is, as it were, kind of, it's, a, it's almost like performative speech. And on the Russian side, if you, if you meet senior figures in these kind of circles in Russia, you have the distinct sense of people wearing masks at all times. And it depends very much on the situation that you're in, which face you get to see. And the intimacy between senior figures in banking and senior figures in oil and senior figures in politics is, and I don't mean this polemically, just as an observation, every bit as intimate as you would expect it to be in Texas or in the United States. I mean, this is an elite group that is incredibly incestuous and they play hardball. And these are the survivors of, you know, the great power struggles of the 1990s. And so they're pretty tough people and they they deploy every conceivable means of influence, persuasion and everything else to get deals done that they consider either to be in the interests of the Russian state or profitable. Yeah. So I guess, you know, whether this is business or politics also gets sorted out in the Russian state. I wonder what does this war tell us about the relative power of, yeah, these high level businessmen in the Russian state. I mean, we call them oligarchs. I mean, clearly they couldn't have wanted this kind of war. We're now talking about a kind of major breakdown of relationships between the West and Russia. Is that just that they didn't have influence over Putin at this decisive moment? Was it always a kind of illusion that they had that influence to begin with? I, I think so. I mean, um, you know, Bloomberg had some data recently that that's, that uh, that kind of gave an idea of this. I mean, there are apparently 23 billionaires in Russia who, by the beginning of this week, had lost, um, they think, uh, about $32 billion worth in net worth. So their net worth shrank from $375 billion to $343 billion since the beginning of this confrontation. And that was before 
the stock market in Russia took the hit that it did today. It, it plunged by 50% today um, in the brief period that free trading was permitted. So that's a huge shock to that group. I mean, it's worth saying that, of course, the beginning of 2022 has been pretty bad for oligarchic billionaires in general. I mean, Elon Musk apparently has fallen out of the 200 billion club. His wealth has been reduced below that critical threshold. So it hasn't been a good time for the wealth of, you know, what you might call the global oligarchy. But clearly the situation in Russia is specific and it's fluid. And no, this is not good for business. And it does tell us something um, about power structure in Russia. And it confirms, I think, what we already know, which is that the old story of Putin as some sort of tool merely of oligarchic interests or the Kremlin as the tool of oligarchic interests is obsolete. And, and it's been obsolete for a while now, right? The, the critical turning point is the, the actions against Mikhail Khodorovsky in 2003 when, when Putin, you know, incarcerated what, the man who was at the time considered to be the richest in, in Russia, broke him, forced him in into, into exile. And since then, I think the consensus has been that the the group that really call, calls the shots, uh, the security establishment types that flock around Putin. And that has been really pronounced since 2014 with the imposition of the first round of sanctions on Russia and the increasing definition of Russia as a state under siege. And what's in a sense happened in the current moment is that that group has moved from a relatively defensive posture to the front foot since 2018 when, you know, they believe themselves to have scored a giant success in Syria. And with a new generation of, of military hardware coming on stream, that group is really calling the shots and driving the, the pace. And the, the business people, the technocrats that still run, as it were, the Russian state and big businesses like Spurbank, for instance, um, or, or Gazprom for that matter, they function and, and they function at a very high level. But they are strictly servants, I think, at this point of the, the group around Putin, which is fundamentally driven by a vision of national security, historical destiny, a kind of uh, political grand strategic vision of Russian power rather than one that can be defined in terms of economic interest first and foremost. Well, clearly, this war is not going to, um, yeah, be in the material <laughs> interests of neither Russia nor Ukraine, nor I guess the rest of the world, as we just discussed. Yeah, we will see how this develops from here. I'm sure it won't be the last time we're talking about it on this podcast. One way or another, we'll come back to it. But I think we'll leave it there for now. And otherwise, yeah, look forward to uh, hopefully some not so dour topics in the weeks ahead. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. 
It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.